Hello from your favorite Grasslands PR team. This week we're back with another reason why these overlooked and underappreciated ecosystems are objectively the best biome. I'm Nicole. And I'm Rachel. And I am sitting here in a witch hat ready for Spooky Vibes <laughs> round three with more vultures. <laughs> I don't think it's round three, but yes. Well, you had Part- daughter, which was Spooky Vibes round one. Was that the first one? Yeah, I think so. Okay, maybe. Vampire planes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, because we said we were going to start doing spooky, and then you did a really wholesome episode instead. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's my bad. <laughs> it's all good. I was just like, I thought for sure there was at least one more before that, but no. Okay. Anyways. <laughs> yes. A quick bit of news. A small prairie in Illinois needs your help. Bell Bull Prairie is a unique, irreplaceable piece of the last remaining prairie in the state, of which less than 1% still exists. It is also an important refuge for rare plants and the endangered rusty-patched bumblebee. If you go to the website savebellbullprairie.org, you can find out more information on what exactly is at stake, as well as very tangible ways to help, including the contacts of many very important people. There are two public meetings that you can attend on October 19th and the 26th as well, completely free to attend. Um, I believe one is at like 6 p.m. And so there will be more information on how to attend those on the website. So definitely show up. And even if you just turn it on and don't say anything in the comments, that's fine. It's still showing that the public is interested. The Prairie is scheduled for demolition on November 1st. Oof. Yeah. So... We need to act now. Um, So please, please, please take a moment to visit savebellbullprairie.org. And even if you don't have the time to, you know, call or email or any of that stuff, use the hashtag savebellbullprairie on social media to help bring awareness to this issue. Um, We only have a couple more weeks, and uh, this is a very important piece of land that needs our help. Get those dates in your calendar. Let's do this. Yeah. October 19th and October 26th and November 1st. But hopefully that one is not important. (laughs) Unless you're going to show up and do something about it. Wink, nudge. Mm. For legal purposes, this is a joke. (laughs) Fantastic. Vultures part two, but old world. Yeah. Old world vultures. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's go. So, um... As I mentioned in part one of our vulture episodes, uh, vultures are scavengers. Wow, you didn't need to listen to that episode to even hear that, did you? That's all that <laughs> happened in that first one. Just don't even bother. It's uh, fine. Yeah, well, I'm not giving, giving a synopsis of that one. No, 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 yeah. Um, but the New World vultures we talked about last time um, exist in the Americas, North mm-hmm. and South America. And the vultures we're talking about today exist pretty much everywhere else. And uh, just to make it clear, in case this uh, note didn't get through in the last episode, out of all vertebrates, only these two groups, these two vulture groups, have evolved to be obligate scavengers. So that is really unique. What about like scarab beetles? Oh, that those aren't vertebrates. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. But that's a that's a good point. Answering my own own question. Yeah, because there's a reason why I say vertebrates because there are yeah. plenty of invertebrates that fulfill those roles. Yeah. But in the vertebrate world, it's pretty much only vultures, and huh. sure, plenty of things will scavenge. For example, some competitors of any of these vultures would include various crows or mm-hmm. ravens, because um, they do scavenge, but they're not 
obligate scavengers. And that's what makes these groups really interesting and is why there's so much crazy stuff to talk about with these groups. Yeah. In the old world, we have even more unique adaptations that kind of optimize the food exploitation, as they say in the science world, of <laughs> carcasses and uh, various dead things. There are some really famous examples in these groups, which we will talk about, uh, like the Egyptian vulture, which you probably are familiar with because it breaks open eggs with stones, like nice. ostrich eggs. Yeah, it's that white vulture with a yellow face. Okay. They're really, like, beautiful. They have way too many feathers for a vulture. <laughs> yeah. You think all vultures are beautiful. <laughs> that, I mean, am I wrong? Have you looked <laughs> deep into their eyes? I mean, yeah, some vultures are pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, yeah, another famous example in the old world of, like, unique uh, food exploitations and unique adaptations is the bearded vulture, mm -hmm. which, of course, is uh, the vulture that extracts marrow from bones and uh, eats pretty exclusively bones. Of course, yes. Yes. So, <laughs> what, what, are you, what are you, are you being sarcastic? It's just funny. You're like, of course, this is the one that eats bones. Like, that's just common knowledge. Oh, that's my bad. <laughs> I don't <laughs> I think I hang out with too many people that really like this stuff yeah. <laughs> or are very familiar with it. Um, Alan and I have had very – what? Um, Alan is a big fan of bearded vultures. Oh, so, yeah. Uh, um, Alan, this one's for you. <laughs> uh, and there's way too many vultures in this group. I'm not going to be going through all of them. Um, I pretty much just picked out the ones that I thought were either like good representations of certain things that a lot of them have in common or some really unique – ones. Um, but in order to kind of understand what the heck is going on with this group of vultures, uh, we're going to look at some taxonomy because Ooh. that's one of my guilty pleasures. Uh, I find this stuff really interesting and I think it helps us understand like this kind of cool convergent evolution thing we've got going on with vultures. Mm -hmm. So um, just in case you're not familiar with the term convergent evolution, listener, uh, usually in convergent evolution, what's happened is the animals are not related at all uh, or the plants, whatever group you're looking at, uh, but they just evolved to fit a similar lifestyle. So they end up superficially having some traits in common. And the new world and old world vulture groups uh, are an example of that because uh, while they do share a common ancestor somewhere back in the line, uh, they are not the same family tree. They They're Roots go way, way deep, you know, back in the bird world. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> they're they're not in the same bird families at all. Okay. Uh, so let me try to break down the taxonomy of the old world vultures. Um, now, all of these guys, these like birds of prey and vultures, are in the order Accipitriformes. So they have that in common. Um, but like we talk about, talked about cathartity last week with mm -hmm. the new world vultures, the vultures we're talking about today are in the same family axipitridae as hawks, kites, and eagles. Okay. So they are more like hawks and eagles than they are vultures from the new world. And they do have some relationships with each other here. There are actually three different lineages of vulture. And uh, m maybe if you're a little bit familiar with them, I'll try to like walk you through some visuals because it's, you know, an audio podcast. It's hard to see <laughs> or impossible to see. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so the, the first lineage we have is the uh, gyps plus hooded vulture 
complex. So basically it's like all of these vultures that kind of look weirdly hunchbacked and have the freakishly long necks, kind of like Jungle Book <laughs> vultures, you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. Um, that's my best way of describing it. Um, and then because there's an extra species from a different genus, they call that a complex. So those guys um, are in one group. Then there is another lineage um, which has just four different genera in it. Those are also pretty hunchbacked and pretty bald. We'll talk about <laughs> the Cenarius vulture there, but these two groups are sister groups. They split apart with a common ancestor, so they um, do look somewhat similar to each other, and they are somewhat related to each other within those two groups. Now, those two groups are also obligate scavengers, all of them. So they feed pretty strictly on carcasses. Whereas the third lineage, which includes only three species, the bearded vulture, the Egyptian vulture, and the palm nut vulture, which is oh. my new personal fascination. <laughs> uh, <laughs> these three species are much more ancient than the other vultures. And they also evolved independently in the eagle hawk family tree from the other vultures. So like these three vultures are a case of like convergent evolution within convergent evolution <laughs> in the vulture world, which I find fascinating. Nice. <laughs> Um, so these, these three vultures all have in common that they are all specialist feeders, not necessarily feeding on carcasses, although they do. Um, and they are all still somehow incredibly spooky, uh, even the palm nut vulture, I suppose. Uh, but we'll talk about the, their diets and feeding habits, habits separately, uh, kind of by necessity because they're not necessarily obligate scavengers in the same way that the others are. So Yeah. There we go. Makes sense? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> I like the nesting dolls of convergent evolution happening here. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. And I'm glad that the palm nut vulture, like, I'm assuming actually eats, like, palm nuts and isn't just named that for no reason because I was going to get mad. <laughs> um, but, yeah. You know what's what's fun about it, uh, spoiler a little bit here, uh, is that they don't eat the nut part. Yeah. They eat the uh, fruit part. <laughs> okay. Okay, I'll so, take it. But yes, they do. Yeah, um, and actually, I feel like uh, there was shoot one of the vultures we talked about. Vultures we talked about last time that also eats palm fruits sometimes. Hmm. So I don't know. There's always like you know when ninety percent of your diet is one thing. Yeah, you're still feeding scraps on other stuff. You know, in the same way that um, what is there's some. Is it deer that sometimes eat carcasses? Yeah, deer. I, there's been there's yeah. videos of deer like killing and eating birds. Right. Yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. So it's like even though they might <laughs> mostly be an herbivore, you know, if they're looking for certain nutrients or have an opportunity, a lot of animals will eat outside of their yeah. box, and that's just normal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sorry if you didn't know about that about deer. Now you do. <laughs> I just love all the spooky vibes we're getting yes, with all yes. these like ugh, death and uh, <laughs> destruction sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. So what do all of these vultures, weirdos included, have in common? Number one, can they smell? No, absolutely not. <laughs> or at least not enough to not forage. Well. Yeah, yeah, they can't yeah, forage yeah. <laughs> with their sense of smell because it's not that well developed mm -hmm. compared to the other vultures. Yeah. <laughs> so that means they're finding food exclusively by sight. Cool. Number two. There's lots of competition, <laughs> um, which they all have in common. And that's not just because there are so many different vultures. And again, we're talking about a pretty wide range of the world, like Europe, Asia, uh, the Middle East, 
the entire African continent, the mm -hmm. Indian subcontinent. Like we're talking about a lot of the world here. Yeah. Um, and so uh, there are not only a ton of competing scavengers, there's also a ton of predators and megafauna within the ranges of some of these species. So there's like um, a little bit more of a remnant of the sort of world we talked about last time that's gone extinct more so in North America. A lot of sure. that still exists in other ways in, um, for example, Africa. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of really cool vulture interactions happening in Serengeti and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So um, – did you say Australia? No. Are there no vultures in Australia? Not that I found. Huh. Weird. Yep. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Because it's like, it's not as if um, they're really restricted to a specific range. Like the Egyptian vulture is not only found in Africa and like we're talking like down into South Africa. Sure. So, you know, the bottom of the continent. Um, they're also found in Spain mm. and other parts of Europe. And like, it's it's crazy how widespread some of these groups are, even when they have not like, you know, if you picture a range map, often like an entire portion of the map will be a color to indicate their range. Yeah. A lot of the vulture ranges are like pockets, kind of mm -hmm. like dots around like where there are mountains, for example. Sure. Um, but it still can span a huge distance and it's kind of incredible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so not in Australia though. And uh, I did want to mention, you know, we've talked about some of the grasslands in these places in other episodes. So as we're like imagining what we talk about here, you know, I did mention specifically the Serengeti ecosystem. Um, but, you know, you can kind of picture the same sort of environments we talked about with, for example, the Bengal florican in the uh, episode we did, like those grassland areas in India, mm -hmm. the Eurasian steppes, pretty much the entirety of the Eurasian steppes. Yeah. Um, and uh, much of the African continent uh, when we're kind of imagining where these vultures might be living. Yeah. Cool. Another thing they all have in common, they are much more raptorial or predatory than other vultures. Like, so last time we talked about how pretty much only the black vulture is known to be at all raptorial, mm -hmm. whereas every single vulture, even the palm nut vulture, will readily kill things, especially if they're weak or injured. Um and sometimes they'll just, like, snatch parrots out of the air, uh, for example. Nice. <laughs> so that is not uncommon for these guys. And they also are much stronger, like, is probably obvious because they are more aligned with their hawk and eagle ancestry. Um, so, yeah, pretty pretty strong animals. <laughs> they also have bear skin. Uh, but I wrote, I wrote down in my notes, bear parentheses-ish skin, uh, because it's really not that bear. Like, okay, some groups... Like, picture those, like, hunchbacked, really long-necked vultures. They look fairly bald, um, but they are covered in fine feathers, hair-like feathers. And, you know, that's true of vultures we talked about last time as well. Um, but we do have members of this group which maybe only pockets around their eyes mm -hmm. are bald. Um, and so that is a little bit interesting um, about these groups, I think. And uh, the obvious question is why this is the case and, yeah. like, why they would have any bald spots at all or why it may not be necessary for some groups. And, you know, I think the um, conventional wisdom back in the day on this topic was more about, like, cleanliness. Yeah. But we just learned about how <laughs> their bacterial colonies are very important to them and their wrinkly skin can aid with that. And certainly I would imagine the fine hair-like feathers aid in trapping more micro 
organisms that they would like to have around. Sure. Um, and we know that it really has nothing to do with cleanliness. And I think our best guess right now is that it's more thermoregulation and signaling, which I guess makes sense. A lot of the more naked vultures tend to be uh, – well, no, that's not true. A lot of them <laughs> live in freaking mountaintops. So, huh. yeah, I, but I have no idea. I mean, I, that's just something people say. I didn't personally look into it very much, mm-hmm. um, but it is kind of an open question for me that I don't fully understand um, why that would be. Uh, it is true that some of the the naked-necked <laughs> vultures uh, tend to stick their heads up into carcasses more. Yeah. So that is certainly probably part of it. Um, but yeah, there, there's – as far as the micrology – that's not the word – microbiology <laughs> – as far as the microbiology goes, um, you know, they only studied turkey and black vultures in that study um, about their microbiome uh, and how that helps them not get sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is hypothesized by those same researchers that this almost certainly has to be true for old wo- world vultures as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to do more research on this. Uh, they called specifically to help with endangered species or critically endangered species, of which there are several in the old world. Um, The Cape Griffin, the critically endangered white-headed vulture. Um, So, you know, trying to reintroduce those species without a healthy microbiome could be really dangerous. And that's why we need to do more research, Uh, which, you know, in general, we kind of need more research about these guys. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Ain't that true for everything? (laughs) It it absolutely is. Um, Science will never run out of new things to look at. No, no. (laughs) All right. Finally, um, these guys all tend to mostly use open habitats, Um, either grasslands, mountains, or even semi-arid or arid desert habitats. Um, There are like some exceptions. Uh, We'll talk about how the palm nut vulture really likes uh, forested beachy areas. Uh, But those that live in or nest in mountains, still actively hunt on the plains, and they may be using grassland environments within those mountain ranges, like Mm -hmm. alpine meadows, um, steppe environments, and even the palm nut vulture that loves to be on the beach uh, can extend into savanna habitats and use savannas that are more dry. So um, these guys, as far as the ones I looked at, are all using grasslands in some way or another, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Okay, so the interesting part about this for me is all of these sort of specialized diets and the ways that these vultures manage to make a living doing some pretty gross and horrible things. (laughs) (laughs) So I picked out some of the old world vultures that to me have like the most interesting stuff about them uh, that I wanted to talk about. And obviously that means that our three specialists, weirdos, uh, that converged with the others have to go first. (laughs) Fantastic. So let's talk about specialized crazy vulture diets, starting with the Egyptian vulture, which, as we know, feeds on carcasses. Um, But it is also really well known for feeding on feces and garbage, too. Nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. So um, let me try to do a better job of describing these animals. Not relevant right now, but the palm nut vulture looks a lot like a secretary bird, but just kind of like uglier. <laughs> That's a great description. I was thinking that they looked more like 
<clears throat> like a turkey vulture, but cuter. So <laughs> um, I like uh, coming from both angles there. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, the Egyptian vulture is uh, mostly white with black along the outside edges of its wings, its primaries. Um, <laughs> it has a yellow face. And some of these pictures, he's got a real fun hairdo and all of his little, like, light feathers around his ha- head is just, like, poofed up like a little little bird. Cute it hairdo. Looks like a feather boa on the yes. top of his head. Yes. There we go. Yeah. Beautiful vultures. And you'll notice Ew, their tongues are really gross. Oh, my God. Yeah. There's a picture. Yeah, that one. I don't know which website it was on, but it kept popping up and I was like, ugh. Um, yeah, bird tongues are super weird, but that's a story for another day. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Egyptian vulture, um, I, I see that it has a common name of Pharaoh's chicken, which I think is freaking adorable. Um, it has incredible eyesight and like other old world vultures, it has to survey an area looking visually for its food and like this bird is very timid at carcasses which i find really cute like when i was reading accounts for other vultures like the red-backed vulture um which is famous for being kind of a vulture pirate the red-backed vulture will like beat up other vultures and steal (laughs) their food um it's like yes usually they pick on egyptian vultures like oh (laughs) man (laughs) because they're just a really weak little targets and basically the way egyptian vultures have managed to eke out some sort of niche in the scavenger world is by feeding on the scraps left behind and rejected by other vultures Hmm. yeah uh so they either pick up completely small unnotable carcasses like passerine birds small mammals uh dead dogs which are more notable but you know uh, might be picked over a little bit um or just kind of timidly go up to the carcass after the other vultures leave <laughs> and see what they can find yeah um but they they basically had to make use of other food resources in order to survive um and this is like, oh, sorry my brain just did this thing while i was talking out loud <laughs> where i was like i wonder if it's because these guys developed these scavenging traits after there were pretty established vulture populations already Mm, that they were competing with or something. I don't know. Interesting thought there because um, I would have to look at the phylogeny of that, how how ancient those divergences are. But it would be interesting to think like, you know, maybe the reason this group is so weird (laughs) is because they were trying to go somewhere. There already was a huge, you know, bank of competition. So uh, the two notable ways that they get additional resources (laughs) is through bird eggs and organic waste. Um, And I want to talk about the bird eggs first because this is something they're incredibly well known for. If you've seen uh, an Egyptian vulture in action, it's probably in a documentary where they're smashing open ostrich eggs. Um, Because documented tool use is super fun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, And they're most notable for doing this with ostrich eggs um, because that was the first like documented observation and work that scientists did was, you know, baiting them with ostrich eggs, um, especially in I think they did this a lot in South Africa and in Serengeti. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not just ostrich eggs. Mm-hmm. 
um, that they have been known to do this with, uh, they will take other eggs. If the egg can be carried, for example, greater flamingo eggs or great white pelican eggs, they will just carry the egg up and drop it to the ground to break it open. In the case of the larger eggs, like other vulture eggs that are much too large, for example, various griffin species mm-hmm. or ostrich eggs, uh, <laughs> they have been documented using tools. And this is uh, usually rocks. And, you know, it's been talked about so much, it almost didn't seem interesting to me, but I read a study anyway and was kind of excited to see that through studies in the wild and in captivity, we've actually shown this to be an innate uh, behavior in these birds and that it's shown in sort of a variable way within fractions of the studied groups, both in wild and in captivity. So um, it's a skill that some of them have an innate tendency for, but it's also a skill that can improve with practice and learning. Mm -hmm. So especially if the birds are exposed to it while they're younger and their brains and their behaviors are still developing, they will be able to pick up that trait much better. And as they practice it, they'll get much better at it, which I think is really freaking cool. Yeah. So... That's the only interesting thing about it to me. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> um, in that particular study that I, I read, um, they were showing these uh, uses of other eggs and, and other techniques of breaking eggs besides using stone tools mm-hmm. um, to suggest that they're probably using these techniques in Europe too and not just in Africa, which is kind of important because, you know, when originally we thought of them as using this just to get into those big ostrich eggs, um, you tend to ignore <laughs> the things that are happening right in front of you or, yeah. um, you know, in some cases, ignoring the wisdom that's being passed down generationally from observations too. So mm-hmm. it has been documented now uh, in other ways. Nice. Now, what about organic waste? <laughs> <laughs> and I am using that phrase uh, not just to refer to poop in a nice way, mm-hmm. but because it's not just poop. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, and again – in case it's not clear, they also eat dead things and scavenge. Mm-hmm. I said that already, but just making that clear. Um, it turns out poop is probably an important source of pigments for their yellow face and not much else, which I find absolutely fascinating. Weird. And this was from some work done in 2002 um, where they broke down the dietary, you know, uh, components. <laughs> of the ungulate feces that they're feeding on and realized it is a horrible source of nutrition. (laughs) Um, Especially, yeah, they're major nutritions. But because carcasses contain very few carotenoids, which is the pigment needed for yellow features in their skin, um, it turns out ungulate feces and I made like a bold note here, egg yolks Mm. are an excellent source of those carotenoid pigments. Okay. So a lot of things are clicking into place now for this guy for me. <laughs> um, and they eat so much uh, stuff that contains those pigments um, that they end up with some pretty excessive pigment levels in their blood compared to what would be needed for dietary reasons. Um, and it was kind of cool. They kind of demonstrated this as like a an evolutionary mechanism for how they developed this like bright yellow face and these other features and also their tendency to chomp down on poop (laughs) Um, because uh, you know having an excessive amount of these carotenoids in your 
in your bloodstream would just naturally kind of seep into your skin and reflect a, a different pigmentation level, which would be visible and mm-hmm. which could indicate if it actually was sort of this evolutionary mechanism, it could indicate to other vultures this individual is healthy or is um, really successful or something like that, right? Because it takes a lot of work to eat poop. Well, that's the thing. <laughs> and so, like, when researchers were were looking at this mm-hmm. and trying to figure out why the heck they're eating so much poop, uh, they, they said, hang on, if if the yellow coloration is going to be like, oh, we got to eat poop to get this yellow coloration, like, it has to be an actual signal of health. Like, so how is this actually demonstrating to any other vulture that they're healthy? Or is it just faking health? Ooh, or is it just faking health? (laughs) Well, I think in terms of like the evolutionary sense, the researchers were really hoping that like, okay, yes, their skin could become saturated with these and that could, you know, be what causes other vultures to realize it's a signal of health. Yeah. You know, like the pigment came first and the health attachment came second (laughs) so i don't know how they would fake it but anyway well because like oh i'm just gonna eat some poop because i can't find enough eggs but they're gonna think that i'm really good at finding eggs because i ate a bunch of poop and my Uh, my skin is yellow i see what you're saying i see what you're saying well uh (laughs) these researchers hypothesized something different (laughs) well they're wrong (laughs) well they they were looking at what sort of costs could be associated with something like this um, because that's the only way it's really actually beneficial. And they hypothesized that some costs of eating excrement could include um, exposing the vulture to like gastrointestinal parasites and yeah. things like that, which might be harder to kill off. Um, so demonstrating that you're healthy enough to consume parasites and not have any issues. Yeah. Another thing was that like <laughs> you're you're showing that you're so successful that <laughs> this is like a nice spin on your hypothesis, Nicole. <laughs> it's why I'm laughing so much. Um, it takes time and effort to search for an absolutely negligible source of food that is yeah. not giving you any benefit whatsoever. So it's like, oh, I am so healthy and I am so successful that I can waste time soaring around looking for poop to make my face beautiful <laughs> is kind of the thought process there. Amazing. <laughs> Which I think is is valid, maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, but regardless, that's the hypothesis they posed in 2002. And as far as I can tell, nobody has found any other <laughs> any other ideas it's still being cited in in publications in 2020 and 2021 so nice. um our development of our understanding there stopped at 2002 nice. with and, until just cases. now when i said they do it to fake fitness <laughs> but that wouldn't make any sense unless they were like ah yes yellow skin you're not jaundiced you are healthy yeah well i mean obviously they think yellow equals healthy so i'm just rolling with it okay because they are healthy, Nicole. Because they are healthy. Um, what was cool is they they uh, they tested this because Egyptian vultures in zoological settings were really pale, hmm. and so they were like, "Oh, is it because they're not eating poop?" And they put like a bunch of cow shit in the pens with them, and it, they brightened up. So, oh my gosh, that's amazing. They also did a lot of like chemical analyses and stuff. I'm not trying to like mm-hmm. make the science sound like it was absolute nonsense, yeah, but yeah. yeah. I mean, but it's really simple, and it's like, yeah. if that's the only thing that changed, then yeah, something in the poop did that. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Simple doesn't mean bad, so, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's neat. Um, anyway, they also eat rotting fruits and vegetables, so that's cool. <laughs> Fantastic. 
rotting fruit, vegetables, and literal garbage. Um, nice. They, yeah, are pretty noteworthy for being like, you know how in Kansas it's seagulls? Yeah. And I just cringed seagulls, out yeah. when I said that out loud. <laughs> I'm trying to use terms that people who aren't me would understand. Um, goals, though. I will punch anybody else who says seagulls. Wow. <laughs> just kidding. I won't do that. Um, I'll punch myself. Ooh. <laughs> Hope that caught got caught on the microphone. Yeah. The Egyptian vultures are like that in some regions, too. Nice. They're just great at exploiting other resources. And you know what? You don't see any other vultures going into garbage dumps looking for rotting veg. So, yeah. 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 It's, a, it's a nice, useful trait for them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So that's Egyptian vultures. Bearded vultures, I think, for a lot of people, are one of the most interesting vultures because they eat bones. Yeah. And... This is freaking fascinating to me. I had a lot of questions about it. Um, I'll take you through my thought process as I was reading up on these guys too. Um, but to give you an overview, they specialize on bones scavenged from medium-sized carcasses, uh, which are left over from other scavenger guilds members after they've been mostly eaten. Sound familiar? <laughs> Yeah, so after everybody else has picked it over, they show up, and if there's a little bit of flesh, they might eat it, but uh, they're mostly there for the bones. And they're really cool looking, too. They're very beautiful. I'm Oh, Nicole, describe them. <laughs> we hadn't even said what they looked like. No, I'm terrible. <laughs> they are, like, they got a little bit of white on them, but they're mostly, like, a beautiful rufous coloration red um with like black brown wings and this really striking like black eye mark that comes from like their bill up through their eye and then like really cool like eyeliner on their eye that's bright red yeah and some of those colorations and i didn't do any um like serious research or investigation on their pigmentation um but it does come from the environment um their feathers aren't naturally pink or red. They uh, become stained with various dirts, I guess. Mm -hmm. I was trying to figure out like a better way to like minerals, but like yeah. where are they getting the minerals? It's like the dirt, dirt. you know? Yeah. Um, and that also means depending on which part of the world an individual bearded vulture is living, mm -hmm. um, they might have different – differences in like the iron and zinc levels in their body yeah, to be more white from their feathers and yeah. yeah um and as they're grooming and preening their feathers uh they might be consuming more iron because the soils that they've rubbed on their feathers are more iron rich um so yeah it's it's a, a preening thing that they do to themselves yeah but yeah and uh how much else do you know about bearded vultures nicole not much Okay. I'm so sorry for very dismissively assuming like everybody knows everything about bearded vultures a minute ago. <laughs> that was should be. very rude of me. I realize not everybody goes through crazy uh, zoologic bird phases where, where they just digest nothing but bird information forever. Yeah. So um, I'm so sorry. You will get to school me on so many other things every time you speak. <laughs> okay. Well, cool. So you know that they eat bones and that's it. Well, they love munching bones. <laughs> wow. 70 to 90% of the diet is bone. And this is not because they're mostly exposed to bone. It's because they seek it out and they pretty much only want it. Like, for example, in one study of wild birds, when given the choice 
between a piece of meat and a bone, they selected the bone. Hmm. Like, they want the bone. That's all they want. <laughs> um, this, go ahead. I was just going to make a really dumb joke. Please. They would be really helpful to play a game of phasmophobia with. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> just get in there. Send in the vulture first. It's got to find the bones. <laughs> uh, man. And you know what they're also really good at? Dissecting owl pellets. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. Every, like, middle school science lab uh, bone dissection Get a bearded vulture as your lab partner because um, actually don't maybe because they tend to just swallow the entire pellet hole if they can. Yeah, Yeah. are they gonna dissect it or are they just gonna swallow it? Yeah, I mean they they're not really put off by all the feathers and stuff in the pellets, but um, they will eat pellets. Nice for the bones inside, Um, which brings up another interesting point, which is that because they're pretty much just eating bone, they don't produce pellets at all. Which is different from not just like hawks and eagles and owls, but it's different from other vultures too. Yeah. Um, so that's wild. Where's the bone going? More <laughs> on that later. Uh, <laughs> uh, they are also notably able to eat large like leg bones and they tend to like preferentially select extremities from these carcasses. So they will grab a a huge leg bone, carry it into the air, and drop them like 20 or 80 meters into the ground uh, into their bone-smashing quarry, which, yes, you heard me right. (laughs) Bearded vultures have a bone-smashing quarry that they use. It's called an ossuary. (laughs) Oss for bone, of course. And like they're pretty solitary scavengers, so like maybe one or two of these vultures will have like a smashing ground where they t- they take all their big bones and smash them. <laughs> you're, you're missing my face, just like you know, loading slowly that information to uh-huh. consume it. Like I, it's epically ominous. <laughs> it's very good. Like imagine you're hanging out around a mountain range and there's just like a, this quarry of rocks that have smashed bones everywhere. I would feel. Like I was in a horror movie. Yeah. <laughs> I love it so much. Um, so they do live around mountains, but they are hunting one of those vultures that you know requires the mountainous areas for the rocks, the caves, the cliffs, but is hunting in a variety of open areas around there. Uh, yeah. And once they've picked out their uh, bone-smashing quarry, <laughs> uh, they uh, will swallow the fragments from the bones that breaks – or just pick the marrow out of the bones, which is kind of awesome. Okay. Um, and in Southeast Europe, because their range, again, expands a huge area, uh, they have been observed doing this to smash open tortoises in their bone quarries, too. So very useful. Um, they will sometimes leave the bones there to store them, quote unquote, but more often they'll take them to their nest or take them to caves nearby. And basically they just store bones everywhere because uh, nice. <laughs> bones are very storable. <laughs> yes, they are. <laughs> it's one of the benefits of bones. Yeah. Um, so this led me to my two primary questions about this. Number one, how on earth are they living on bones? <laughs> like, how is that? Like, in my mind, bones have, like, no nutrition. Yeah. Like, maybe the marrow does, but I don't understand how eating fragments of bone could. Um, my other question is, how do they digest the bones? So let's start with the first one. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> 
bones, it turns out, actually do have a surprising amount of nutritional value. I think the study that I'm referencing came out in 2020, um, Lincoln the doobly-doo, but it turns out fresh bones contain 108% of the energy found in fresh meat, hmm. which is kind of crazy. And it's been calculated that for every 100 grams of bone ingested, a bearded vulture can actually absorb most of the energy from it. Like, so if we had 100 grams of bone versus 100 grams of meat, mm-hmm. um, it could get 440 kilojoules from the meat. Mm-hmm. 380 from the bone so it's like a substantial amount of energy that's being extracted from the bone yeah it's not like it's leaving a lot of the energy in it you know what i mean Mm -hmm. in addition to that uh and because that's all fresh bone right it turns out dried bones stored over a long period of time contain or retain rather 90 percent of the protein that can also be found in fresh bones so basically it's almost as energetically rich as a diet based on meat, if you have a bone-based diet. And most of the protein is being retained in those bones that are being stored for long periods of time. So there's some cool advantages built in there, which is that uh, meat decomposes very quickly. Mm -hmm. These guys don't really have to worry about that, although they could if they wanted to. They're vultures. Um, But the bones can last for months without really degrading much at all. So it has a huge shelf life. And uh, it turns out that when bones are losing water over time, it actually helps to preserve the collagen and bone marrow as they dry out so that those resources are being preserved for vultures to take advantage of. So that was really shocking to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, And now I understand why even when given fresh meat, they're like, nah, the bone's fine. Yeah. I don't know, like, the science behind it and how much it actually matters, but, like, one of my pet peeves is people that go out and, like, collect antlers. Mm. Like, if you collect, like, one, probably not a big deal, but there's people that go out in the spring and collect hundreds of antlers. Um, And those antlers are very energetically, like, good, full of good stuff. Um, And a lot of small mammals, especially, um, love to just nom, nom, nom on those antlers. And when you're taking those out of the ecosystem, you're taking away a lot of energy. Mm, Um, So... I know people that, like, they refuse to take antlers. Um, Like, they'll take a picture with it, put it back down. Like, what are you going to do with that? Are you going to ever do anything except, like, put it in a box somewhere? Like, (laughs) I know people that have hundreds of antlers just in boxes. And it's like, what's the point? Like, it's one thing. I don't know if you make, like, a cool art piece out of it or give it to your dog. Dogs love chewing on antlers Mm -hmm. and chewing on bones. Um, Obviously, be safe. Let, uh, monitor your dogs when it gets small. Throw it away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like that's kind of like a a really interesting kind of touchy subject yeah. as far as like antler collection. Well, and when you're thinking about – so obviously like this vulture is pretty unique. And if you're living in North America, you're like, mm-hmm. well, like this isn't really applying here. And yeah. nothing is – obligated to eat bones Mm -hmm. but even animals that get plenty of like their primary nutrition or energy from other means Mm -hmm. can get like very necessary nutrients from bones that are difficult to find otherwise yes especially important yeah and those antlers they're dropping when it's still super cold out and there's not a lot of not a lot of other food around um so it could make it or break it for a little little rat somewhere (laughs) i have a stupid question do do antlers have marrow they wouldn't right um i'm not 100 percent sure (gasps) Maybe it's not a stupid question. Ooh, now I want to know. <laughs> Could I Google it? Yes. I'm letting you do the work, though. <laughs> wah, 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 wah. 
Um, so according to animaldiversity.org, wonderful resource. Love that resource. <laughs> As antlers near the end of the growing process, spongy bone in their outer edges is replaced by compact bone, while their centers become filled with coarse, spongy, lamellar, lamellar bone and marrow spaces. So there's like a little bit, but not a lot. Okay. So there's a little bit. Fascinating. Okay. That's really cool. Yeah. Bones are such an interesting body part. <laughs> I was, I, it took me a second because I was like, wait, are they an organ? I don't think that they're considered an organ body part. What are what are I mean the marrow inside has a lot that's of cool organ. stuff. Yeah, yeah, but like is the bone itself considered an organ? I don't know. Boy, we're asking the hard hitting <laughs> questions today. Here on Grassland Groupies, we discuss the meaning of bones. Yes. Yes. <laughs> are bones an organ? Ooh, I'm not the first one to ask this. Bone is a mechanically optimized organ system. Okay, yeah. it's an organ system. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I just wasn't sure if there was like a different technical word for yeah. an organ that has like such a skeletal component. <laughs> <laughs> I meant that in a literal – well, what, hang on. that It's all literal. Uh, <laughs> I meant that in like a scaffolding sort of sense, yeah, not like <laughs> – I know. <laughs> what? Oh, my God. Okay, well, you know what? Anyway, we've answered that question. Long story short. Maybe if you find some cool bones or antlers and things in the woods, take a cool picture with it, but leave it alone. Yeah. Thanks for that. Yeah. <laughs> I always forget about our little smell needs. Yeah. It is kind of fun when you do find a bone if you're going to, well, I mean, I assume, I would hope you're going to like pick it up and look at it or at least poke it with a stick. Yeah. Look for like little rodent gnaw marks on it and stuff. Mm -hmm. It's very yeah. nice. I have a friend that um, she had a bunch of antlers and she's like, what the hell am I going to do with these? So she started putting them outside um, for the squirrels oh. and like they're gone within like a week. Like no they way. love them. In winter or all year? I, I think like all year. Yeah. yeah she'll offer fine. them. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> um, okay. So um, forget about uh, everything else that eats bones for a second because I want to talk <laughs> about how on earth uh, – these vultures are digesting bone well enough to not even have to produce pellets at all. Yeah. And maybe like a little bit of like a basic bird biology reminder, birds typically are extremely optimized in their systems to keep their weight down. Mm -hmm. And it is true that vultures overall tend to be a lot, I don't know, less uh, – affected by you know consuming a lot of food and having like a sudden increase in weight like sometimes they'll gorge themselves so much this is all vultures yeah. that they you know literally can't take off and they're just like <laughs> ah whatever i guess i'm stuck here now mm -hmm. um so they they do have an advantage over other birds that makes this a little bit unique mm -hmm. um and as far as bearded vultures uh there's a few things going on here first of all they do not have a gizzard so typically we think of bird um, digestion happening in two parts. There's a gizzard, which is going to mechanically break down things. Mm -hmm. um, if some birds are consuming stones and pebbles and stuff, usually it's like to assist the gizzard in breaking down, although a lot of gizzards can just break things down mechanically on their own anyway. Mm -hmm. And then there's also a chemical breakdown section. And I have totally forgotten the names of those organ that organ doesn't like really matter what it's called all that really matters is that this is where what we think of as digestion for us ourselves mm -hmm. is happening in a bird um the bearded vulture does not have a gizzard it is not crushing the bone 
the stomach is the only part that is doing that work. And it turns out the gastrointestinal tract of the bird is remarkably long compared to pretty much every other bird. Um, And that's not just, you know, the intestines being long, like the stomach, everything in that tract is incredibly long. And for raptors, which actively hunt their prey, like hawks and eagles, um, they tend to have very short intestines. So makes sense body weight isn't quite as much of an issue for vultures, so they can afford to have Mm -hmm. uh, a longer system for digesting the bone. Okay. But again, their stomach itself is very like tubular. It's elongated and very elastic. It's not crushing bone fragments. It's swallowing whole giant chunks of bone. So the other component here is that it turns out the gastric stomach walls have a really high density of the cells that are producing hydrochloric acid. Hmm. And these are producing almost pure hydrochloric acid, which makes this bird remarkable for having stronger stomach acid than in any other carnivore. Wow. And the lower the pH, aka the smaller the acid, the more rapidly bone gets dissolved specifically and it becomes demineralized. So it's pure strength of gastric fluid here. And the fact that- That's a weird sentence. I didn't like that sentence. (laughs) Welcome to spooky vibes where the pure strength of our gastric fluid melts bones. (laughs) It's beautiful. But like, okay, the fact that we know this about bearded vultures- Makes it even more like, okay, we had this whole mystery before about vulture stomach acid and people thinking like, oh, maybe it's at, we can't really tell. It's, I don't know if the science is really right on this. If we can tell with this much certainty that this is the case for bearded vultures, the idea of other vultures having like acid strong enough to kill off all the microbes Mm -hmm. seems like an even, you know more useless hypothesis <laughs> compared yeah. to the microbiomes just being really pumped up. Um, yeah, another nail in the coffin there for me anyway is what <laughs> I'm trying to say. And they, they still might have more strong stomachs than other animals. But sure. Not stronger than the bearded vulture. That's for dang sure. <laughs> Indeed. Do they ever run into problems with like eating like sharp pieces of bone? Isn't that an interesting question? Because you would think, because they're certainly consuming very sharp pieces of bone, and it doesn't seem to stop them or slow them down. Like, they will snarf that stuff up. And they're not the only vultures that do that. I mean, we talked about condors snapping up bone fragments. Plenty of the griffins Mm -hmm. in this part of the world are also snapping up bone scraps. Um, So it might just be that their stomach is so elastic that it doesn't really, you know, puncture it, you know? I mean, if you have like a floppy balloon and you try to stab it, it's going to be much less successful than if you had one that was, yeah. You know, and I was just out. picturing like a hefty commercial when they're like shoving things into the bag. They're like, look how strong it is. Is that why you visibly shuddered? Yes. Because <laughs> you were picturing like bones doing that? Yeah. Imagine stomach. how that would feel like choking down a huge bone and it's like a, a hefty bag commercial no. in your stomach. I feel like that's happened to me with like, a, a bad uh, corn chip sometimes, oh and like mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't bother them. <laughs> uh, shoot. Well, anyway, whatever they swallow stays in there long enough to be completely demineralized. That's good. Yep. To the point where, again, <laughs> there's no pellet coming out, and 
their feces is really fun. Um, in <laughs> fact, the study that uh, that I read <laughs> was specifically analyzing their feces, and uh, the researchers said uh, the dry, hard feces of bearded vultures resemble blackboard chalk. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Which absolutely delighted me. Um, I put that quote in there in bold, and I was like, "You guys." Must have a really fun time out in the field. Yeah. I wonder if they've tried writing with it like it was a oh blackboard job. Uh, yeah. At least one of them has, for right? sure. Right. You would think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So that's pretty awesome. And, uh, of course, they analyzed all of this and found that calcium is the most abundant mineral in bearded vulture feces, uh, up to like 30% of the entire mass of the poo. And basically the result of digested bone is just tons of calcium phosphate, which, you know, they don't need more of that because they're just eating bones. So they're mostly (laughs) pooping that stuff back out into nice uh, chunks of bird poo that turn into chalk. Nice. (laughs) Hard, compact, possibly writable chalk. Yeah. So yeah. It's nice that their poop is so unique because at least you like you're like this is a hundred percent bearded vulture poop. Like. Yes, yes. Ooh, I bet the um, bone smashing quarries are full of just like chunks of chalk. Yes, yes. Chuggy poo. I'm gonna touch on the palm nut vultures to explain what is happening with that one because it makes me smile so much. Like, okay, the palm nut vulture is kind of like if. If, like, an Adams Family child rebelled by having a chuggy beach phase is what I wrote down. Oh, my God. Um, that is a, <laughs> a niche <laughs> description. Thank you. Thank you. Um, they're just really cute. Describe it for us. Oh. So the palm nut vulture. Very, very handsome fella. Very cute. Very um, short. Yes. <laughs> so black and white striking, black and white coloration. Um, but... Their wings, like, kind of, like, it's not just black or, like, just with, like, the black outer primaries like our other friends. It kind of has, like, a fun, like, checkerboard pattern to it. And um, they also have very dark red faces. And if only they had some little frills, they would look like short secretary birds. (laughs) (laughs) They're so cute. I love them so much. Um, And... I don't know. They they barely look like vultures to me. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, if I saw that in passing, I wouldn't automatically assume it was a vulture. Mm-hmm. But if you, like, look at its face, you can kind of see the vulture family resemblance there. Um, but they're just really omnivorous and adorable, and I love them. Um, and they're really only using edge habitats, uh, either where water meets forest or sometimes extending into drier savanna. But, like, they have to have water around for the most part. Like, they just love water. And that makes them kind of an old-world outlier that just sometimes uses grassland. And usually it's, like, a footnote, like, see, they don't always need water, (laughs) you know. Um, But they still definitely kill things, even though they eat mostly fruit. They've been seen taking parrots in flight. They eat bugs. They love seafood. Like, they'll mm. just straight up catch fish in the water and eat crustaceans and stuff like that, too. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, mostly they're eating fruit. Like, up to 65% of an adult's diet is fruit. And the babies, the juveniles, <laughs> are eating up to 92% fruit. So wow. tons and tons of fruit. 
Um, and it's a lot of palm fruits, which I just find very cute. <laughs> so that's a very weird, weird bird. And I just needed to point it out because what is happening? I don't know, <laughs> but it's, I, mm, I love them. Okay. Uh, so to kind of round out this episode, um, I, I wanted to touch on at least a couple of vultures that represent the much larger, more typical group of old world vultures. And the reason I'm devoting such little time to these guys is because so many of their traits um, are going to sound familiar when it comes to the stuff we talked about in the first episode. Um, you know, they tend to be very cooperative feeders compared to the vultures we just discussed. Uh, and you've probably also seen a lot of you know, pictures or videos or animated cartoon versions of vultures <laughs> like these. Um, so uh, the two that I've picked out are two that are kind of telling like a, a bit of a different story that fits in um, the realm of like, these are pretty typical vultures, if that makes sense. Okay. So the first one I want you to look up and describe to us is oh, called no. the Cenarius Vulture. And it lives in Eurasia. And we're talking like the whole of Eurasia. I believe they extend into China and uh, they extend over into Europe, like Spain, those areas. Spain comes up a lot in these studies because they tend to have interesting ways that the animals are choosing to live there. I don't know what it is about Spain. I don't know much about the ecology of Spain. But vulture studies keep mentioning Spain by name as if it's weird. So Yeah. Huh. Weird. Um, not as cute. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they are brown with brown with a black face <laughs> and kind of white on their necks. Um, and do do better. Do better. That you They're just described brown. so many birds, Nicole. It's brown on brown with a little bit of white on its neck. <laughs> That's just what they look like, man. I can't help it. I'm a, I don't know. Some of the pictures yeah. show them like almost completely featherless on their necks um which are white um and then some of them show them very feathered so i don't know if that's a juvenile versus adult thing mm. um, you know what it is is um a how that vulture is feeling in the moment the picture is taken thing <laughs> like have you okay nice. you've worked with turkey vultures obviously yeah. and uh i'm assuming you've noticed that like they can extend their neck out and look quite naked. Yeah. But then when it's a little bit colder, they can kind of like almost tuck it in and like poof up their like collar almost around the back of their head. Okay. So these guys are doing the same thing. So if it's a little bit warmer out or if they're a vulture that lives in a warmer climate, they might have their full neck extended. But if it's like really freaking cold, <laughs> uh, they'll kind of like fluff up their feathers and almost make themselves like a scarf as they tuck their neck in. Aww. Or like, give themselves a neck beard. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> They're brown. They look like brown vultures. Yeah. You see what I mean about them being more like hunched over though, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they have much longer necks mm -hmm. and like really chunky beaks, I guess. Yeah. Um, now you're going to hate me, but look up Eurasian griffins and describe the exactly difference the in appearance. <laughs> <laughs> they're not, they're like, they're pretty different, but they're okay. not that different. <laughs> if you describe the same way you did the last one, it's going to be like, well, it's brown on brown and it's got a little bit of... <laughs> Um, I mean, some of the pictures of the Cenarius vulture might have been mislabeled because this looks like the same fucking bird. <laughs> okay. Brown on brown. With, it's got more of a white neck. Like, the yeah. feathers are actually white versus the other one. It just kind of looked like the skin was white. Yeah. Um, and to be so. fair, there is a 
juvenile i i think at least unless i'm i could be mistaken don't quote me on this but i think there's a juvenile difference in the scenarius vulture too where um scenarius is literally referring to sort of like a brown color that's like almost tinged with black and so they tend to look really really dark and i believe they may not be as dark when they're younger okay so that could be part of it Okay, well, thank you for that beautiful description. You're welcome. I feel like the, the <laughs> griffin, the griffin, Eurasian griffin, I forgot what it was called. <laughs> I feel like the Eurasian griffin is like vulture. Like yeah. whenever you see vultures depicted in media, it's a Eurasian griffin. Probably. Yeah. And if that name sounds weird, um, there used to be a species called the griffin vulture. Um and there's all kinds of taxonomic weirdness going on right now. The most recent studies have indicated, like, these these are all very different species. Mm-hmm. Um, what we used to think were just, like, regional variations or subspecies. So um, there has been quite a split, and there's a lot more species of griffins sure. out there now. And they all look – like, you thought the Cenarius vulture looked similar to the Eurasian griffin. <laughs> Try telling, like, the various griffins apart. It's very yeah. difficult. <laughs> it's like, this this one's face is slightly a different color. Yeah. Um, Whereas, yeah, the Cenarius vultures are pretty dark. And uh, with the Cenarius vulture, it is using various mountainous ecotypes in Eurasia, and that's kind of dictating where its range is. Usually it's using forests in those ecotypes, but it's also using alpine meadows and scrub, especially in Tibet and China. And um, some populations use specific ecotypes within that range. Like maybe some of them are using the forested ecotypes in certain parts of the year where other types of the year what oh god whereas in other times of the year they're using the more alpine meadow like rocky mountainous scrub type habitats um and a lot of these bigger vultures i'm including both in this Mm -hmm. tend to be more dominant vultures at carcasses and they're feeding like typical vultures uh the scenarius vulture in particular is one of the biggest old world vultures and i absolutely freaking hate the resource i used for this information for doing this to me it wrote the weight and the wingspan in grams and centimeters <laughs> and just i refused to convert that i was just like no i'm mad and i'm just gonna leave it in there so here we're gonna read it to you in <laughs> grams and centimeters ready oh my god <laughs> are you pulling up something to calculate it while i'm talking yes Twelve thousand five hundred grams <laughs> it's just like an absurdly high number of grams like why not like put that into a different term yeah. I guess if everything else on the site is grams, whatever. Yeah. Uh, 27 and a half pounds. Cool. That's pretty heavy for a bird. Yeah. Yeah. Like a turkey vulture might weigh five pounds. Yeah. To give you an idea. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the wingspan uh, is up to 295 centimeters, <laughs> which I cannot visualize at all. Nine feet, eight inches. Nice. Ooh, that's, that's huge. Yeah. That's a big bird. <laughs> That's California condor right there. <laughs> yeah. So one of the biggest old world vultures. Pretty impressive. There's a small, just in case anybody's like, oh, but what about the males and the females? Like there's a slight sexual dimorphism, mm-hmm. but it's not that big and there's so much overlap. It's negligible. negligible. Does not matter. Sure. So dominant, huge vultures. And uh, in Central Asia, for example, Mongolia, which we talk about a lot on this podcast, the Cenarius vulture is is often following nomads and their domestic herds around. 
because that's the type of carcass that they're mostly consuming. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that in Mongolia specifically, because they did a study in that region of the vultures there, uh, the Cenarius vulture is reliant on good numbers of livestock for successful nesting, which is nice. very interesting. Um, also, this bird is noteworthy because this is the vulture that will feed on the corpses of humans mm-hmm. that are put out on celestial burial platforms. So when you're thinking about the infamous sky burial systems, um, it's occurring in these mountain ranges. Uh, I believe Mongolia, uh, that's where it's being done. And I'm not sure if it's other places. That's my hesitation. I'm not sure if it's practiced outside of Mongolia or if it's like really specific cultural groups within Mongolia that shouldn't include the entire country. You know, it's not like a common thing. But when you hear about this phenomenon occurring, uh, the – huge impressive scenarius vulture is the one descending to consume the flesh of humans nice (laughs) (laughs) but not smashing our bones in bone graveyards that would be pretty cool um personally i uh, think that's a very cool way to dispose of your corpse it is okay the Eurasian griffin, again is quite similar um i believe that they are a little bit more of like a typical open habitat vulture, a little less dependent on mountains than the previous one. Um, But they are also notable because they depend on livestock. Uh, And this is something a lot of these vultures are starting to have in common, especially the ones that live outside of Africa, um, where, you know, a lot of their original wild prey species may have gone extinct or become incredibly rare. Uh, Of course, there's quite a few large ungulate species still around in large numbers in Africa. Um, But for the Eurasian griffin, Mm -hmm. uh, mountain goats, deer, gazelle that it used to prey on have been replaced to sometimes a great extent um, but at the very least, to a lesser extent, by just a variety of domestic species. Yeah. We're talking sheep, goats, cows, horses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, this is true for the other griffins in that same range as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the Mongolian gazelle, which used to have nine million strong herds. And now maybe there's like a million, but maybe there's way less. Who knows? Yeah, right. And that's <laughs> a huge part of it, too. Like, who knows? Yeah. There's so much change constantly happening in those places. Mm-hmm. Or in Spain, <laughs> um, a lot of vultures are now pretty significantly feeding on rabbits as yeah. their primary resource. <laughs> Even when in other parts of their range, they would be feeding on sheep and deer. Yeah. Um, so again, I don't know what's ecologically happening or has happened in Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, there's a lot of uh, niche uh, food uses that are occurring there in animals that feed on mammals. So yeah, I find this very fascinating um a lot of those uh domestic species uh the eurasian griffin as it exists today has become totally dependent upon them um and it sometimes will eat other mammals that wouldn't have historically eaten at all like carnivores rabbits and hares and even cetaceans so we're talking like whales whales and dolphins that are washing up on beaches like that probably was not at all part of their historic diets but Mm -hmm. now they're taking use of that um and not only that but uh livestock dependent populations of vultures generally so i'm including scenarius vultures and eurasian griffins and other livestock dependent species uh have sometimes become nomadic Mm. um again that's just specific populations within the larger species but these are not exactly sedentary they're not exactly migratory they're just 
following livestock where they go because that's the only place they can go. So that's yeah. led to some interesting, uh, you know, I don't know. I, it could lead to some interesting ecological shifts. Yeah, yeah. Especially if that wasn't a common thing historically. Um, and they are really social. So at least with the Eurasian griffin, um, because they are pretty social, they will greedily and happily congregate at feeding stations. Um, there are traditional municipal carcass dumps <laughs> that a lot of countries have used in the past. And in some places, they still exist today. Um, I watched a video of uh, an absolute feeding frenzy occurring in Catalonia, Spain, which I put in the description. Um, I mean, it's nothing you haven't seen before. It's just like a bunch of vulture-looking vultures picking at <laughs> bones and stuff. Nice. Um, but that also leads to some interesting, you know, human and vulture-dependent relationships where, you know, there are some concerns with, are these vultures becoming dependent on feeding stations? Like, what yeah. happens when these carcass dumps mm -hmm. become a way of the past and we, you know, continue to dispose of our carcasses in different ways? Yeah. And fortunately, at least with the Eurasian griffin, you know, there are studies showing that even when there are feeding stations, they are still going out and using open grassland where it's a little bit more uh, intermittent to find food. You know, yeah. it's it's harder to find food. Like, they will choose to, to go out when the wind conditions are good and the weather's mm -hmm. great um so even though they will definitely prefer to forage at a feeding <laughs> station they're not necessarily becoming totally dependent but there's a lot sure. of concerns there and concerns about other forms of conflict and it's probably not a huge surprise that a lot of these species are also becoming endangered near threatened or even critically endangered because mm -hmm. of how much their landscape has changed and you know, it's hard being a big vulture out there, especially if you're not already adapted to picking up the scraps of everything else. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, feeding on muscle and the viscera of larger carcasses, these species that are adapted to that typical vulture lifestyle are, are struggling a little bit outside of places where there are so many large ungulates. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to think that a lot of vultures are struggling because I started off the episode and my research <laughs> thinking like, well, old, wo old world vultures are doing great. Because they have so much megafauna still out there. But I mean, yeah. really not much more than North America or, you know, I guess in some cases uh, there are livestock introduced to South America being used mm -hmm. um, by vultures. But yeah, it's just a very different form of change that's happening. And uh, we still need a lot more research on those species yeah. to learn about them. So yeah, that's – an. A little bit of a sad note, but also I think a little bit of an exciting note because, again, there's so little known. And as we're kind of poking a bubble into our envelope of knowledge here with <laughs> – or, or poking a bubble like outside of the bubble, I guess, yeah. <laughs> of our knowledge of vultures, you know, there could be a lot that we still have to learn from them and that they could teach us that would really help us in this ever-changing world that is going to affect us too. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, that is the scoop on old world vultures. And I'm very sorry that I neglected Africa so much. But it turns <laughs> out when vultures are able to happily do vulture things, they're just doing vulture things. And yeah. the story there isn't quite as interesting, even mm -hmm. though the species can be pretty cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or ugly. Or ugly. <laughs> so, yeah. Any other any That's... other thoughts on vultures, Nicole? That was great. Thank you. What's your favorite thing you learned about vultures today? <laughs> I mean, my least favorite was the trash bag stomach. Um, <laughs> I can't think of a favorite one because that's the only thing I can think of. 
<laughs> I like palm nut vultures. They're very and cute. And their chuggy beach life. <laughs> God. That makes me like them less. <laughs> I know it does. And that makes me love them more. Oh, my God. If you're a microbiologist, please study the microbiomes of old world vultures. Thank you. I want to know what's living on the heads of those animals sticking their heads up carcasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to be learned, I'm sure. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> Possibly. Well, one last, one last thing. Last okay. Thing. You know what? As as a person who has worked on livestock pastures here in Kansas, livestock dies, and turkey vultures are all right, I guess, at finding them, but they're not like consuming entire cow carcasses. Mm-hmm. So, like, hey. Good on these griffins and scenarius vultures <laughs> and other beautiful vulture family members for stalking all of these nomadic uh, herders and <laughs> cleaning up the messes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what a great ecological service. I mean, yeah, especially when you're just like out in the middle of nowhere. Like, what are you going to do with a dead cow or a dead sheep? Like, yeah. You think your carrion beetles are going to take care of that? No. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> oh, Would they get to it fast enough? Who knows? Do carrion beetles have microbiomes? I don't know. I mean, probably. I, I need to know more. I think I know a person that could call. Okay. Like, uh, best beetles, they have, they feed their babies their poop so that they can get the micro, the gut flora to be able to digest wood. Oh, gut flora. Yeah. That's a so. great synonym. I kept saying microbiome because I was like, what's another word for that? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> gut flora. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean, they definitely, if you eat different things, you have to have different gut flora. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know all the ins and outs of different kinds of beetles' gut flora. Yeah. Man, what a cool untapped. I'm just like thinking of all the other studies I've read in the last <laughs> couple of years on gut flora mm-hmm. and how like, oh, koalas do that too. Yep. And that's how they pass on chlamydia to their babies. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Hmm, dang. Okay. <laughs> oh, fun. Yeah. Um, Eating poop is very useful, but dangerous. <laughs> That's why it's a great indicator of health, Nicole, for Egyptian <laughs> vultures. You're right. You're right. <laughs> Naysayer. Okay, take us out. Let's go. Okay, okay. Stop us before it gets worse. Uh, thanks for listening. Uh, the Best Biome is produced through our nonprofit, Grass and Groupies, dedicated to inspiring the conservation of grasslands, no matter how poopy. In the show notes, you can find our website, phone number, and social media accounts. Text, call, or tweet your suggestions, fan mail, or hate mail. If you enjoyed the show and want to support us, please, please, please tell your friends about us and, you know, maybe leave us a review on Podchaser or Apple Podcasts. We couldn't do this without your support. See you again very soon. No, that's because like, it might be. It's not illegal. That's why it's happening. The prairie is not illegal. <laughs> sure. But you could be. What? I'm so confused. Fight your local demolition crew now.